This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Heretics by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 9 The Moods of Mr. George Moore. Mr. George Moore began his literary career by writing his personal confessions. Nor is there any harm in this if he had not continued them for the remainder of his life. He is a man of genuine forcible mind and of great command over a kind of rhetorical and fugitive conviction which excites and pleases. He is in a perpetual state of temporary honesty. He has admired all the most admirable modern eccentrics until they could stand it no longer. Everything he writes, it is to be fully admitted, as a genuine mental power. His account of his reason for leaving the Roman Catholic Church is possibly the most admirable tribute to that communion which has been written of late years. For the fact of the matter is that the weakness which has rendered barren the many brilliancies of Mr. Moore is actually that weakness which the Roman Catholic Church is at its best in combating. Mr. Moore hates Catholicism because it breaks up the house of looking-glasses in which he lives. Mr. Moore does not dislike so much being asked to believe in the spiritual existence of miracles or sacraments, but he does fundamentally dislike being asked to believe in the actual existence of other people. Like his master Pater and all the esthetes, his real quarrel with life is that it is not a dream that can be molded by the dreamer. It is not the dogma of the reality of the other world that troubles him, but the dogma of the reality of this world. The truth is that the tradition of Christianity, which is still the only coherent ethic of Europe, rests on two or three paradoxes or mysteries which can easily be impugned in argument, and as easily justified in life. One of them, for instance, is the paradox of hope or faith. That is, the more hopeless is the situation, the more hopeful must be the man. Stevenson understood this, and consequently Mr. Moore cannot understand Stevenson. Another is the paradox of charity or chivalry, that the weaker a thing is, the more it should be respected, that the more indefensible a thing is, the more it should appeal to us for a certain kind of defense. Thackeray understood this, and therefore Mr. Moore does not understand Thackeray. Now one of these very practical and working mysteries of the Christian tradition, and one which the Roman Catholic Church, as I say, has done her best work in singling out, is the conception of the sinfulness of pride. Pride is a weakness in the character. It dries up laughter. It dries up wonder. It dries up chivalry and energy. The Christian tradition understands this. Therefore, Mr. Moore does not understand the Christian tradition. For the truth is much stranger even than it appears in the formal doctrine of the sin of pride. It is not only true that humility is a much wiser and more vigorous thing than pride. It is also true that vanity is a much wiser and more vigorous thing than pride. Vanity is social. 
it is almost a kind of comradeship. Pride is solitary and uncivilized. Vanity is active. It desires the applause of infinite multitudes. Pride is passive, desiring only the applause of one person, which it already has. Vanity is humorous and can enjoy the joke even of itself. Pride is dull and cannot even smile. And the whole of this difference is the difference between Stevenson and Mr. George Moore, who, as he informs us, has brushed Stevenson aside. I do not know where he has been brushed to, but wherever it is, I fancy he is having a good time, because he had the wisdom to be vain and not proud. Stevenson had a windy vanity, Mr. Moore as a dusty egoism. Hence Stevenson could amuse himself, as well as us, with his vanity, while the richest effects of Mr. Moore's absurdity are hidden from his eyes. If we compare this solemn folly with the happy folly with which Stevenson belauds his own books and berates his own critics, we shall not find it difficult to guess why it is that Stevenson, at least, found a final philosophy of some sort to live by, while Mr. Moore is always walking the world looking for a new one. Stevenson had found that the secret of life lies in laughter and humility. Self is the Gorgon. Vanity sees it in the mirror of other men and lives. Pride studies it for itself and is turned to stone. It is necessary to dwell on this defect in Mr. Moore because it is really the weakness of work which is not without its strength. Mr. Moore's egoism is not merely a moral weakness. It is a very constant and influential aesthetic weakness as well. We should really be much more interested in Mr. Moore if he were not quite so interested in himself. We feel as if we were being shown through a gallery of really fine pictures into each of which, by some useless and discordant convention, the artist had represented the same figure in the same attitude. The Grand Canal with the distant view of Mr. Moore. Effect of Mr. Moore through a Scotch mist. Mr. Moore by firelight. Runes of Mr. Moore by firelight, and so on, seems to be the endless series. He would no doubt reply that in such a book as this he intended to reveal himself. But the answer is that in such a book as this he does not succeed. One of the thousand objections to the sin of pride lies precisely in this, that self-consciousness of necessity destroys self-revelation. A man who thinks a great deal about himself will try to be many-sided, attempt a theatrical excellence at all points, will try to be an encyclopedia of culture, and his own real personality will be lost in that false universalism. Thinking about himself will lead to trying to be the universe. Trying to be the universe will lead to ceasing to be anything. If, on the other hand, a man is sensible enough to think only about the universe, he will think about it in his own individual way. He will keep virgin the secret of God. He will see the grass as no other man can see it, and look at a sun 
that no man has ever known. This fact is very practically brought out in Mr. Moore's Confessions. In reading them, we do not feel the presence of a clean-cut personality like that of Thackeray and Matthew Arnold. We only read a number of quite clever and largely conflicting opinions which might be uttered by any clever person, but which we are called upon to admire specifically because they are uttered by Mr. Moore. He is the only thread that connects Catholicism and Protestantism, realism and mysticism. He, or rather his name. He is profoundly absorbed even in views he no longer holds, and expects us to be. And he intrudes the capital I even where it need not be intruded, even where it weakens the force of a plain statement. Where another man would say, it is a fine day, Mr. Moore says, seen through my temperament, the day appeared fine. Where another man would say, Milton has obviously a fine style, Mr. Moore would say, as a stylist, Milton has always impressed me. The nemesis of this self-centered spirit is that of being totally ineffectual. Mr. Moore has started many interesting crusades, but he has abandoned them before his disciples could begin. Even when he is on the side of the truth, he is as fickle as the children of falsehood. Even when he has found reality, he cannot find rest. One Irish quality he has, which no Irishman was ever without, pugnacity, and that is certainly a great virtue, especially in the present age. But he has not the tenacity of conviction which goes with the fighting spirit in a man like Bernard Shaw. His weakness of introspection and selfishness in all their glory cannot prevent him fighting, but they will always prevent him winning. End of chapter 9